Hey everybody, I'm Micah Rich. And I'm Olivia Kane. And welcome to the Weekly Typographic. A podcast where we discuss our favorite type and design news from the week. Welcome back. Welcome back. Episode two of season two, which is everlasting. We're not going to leave you guys alone. We've started and we won't stop. That's the story of season two. Honestly, it's too fun. A lot of the feedback I've gotten about this show is how much fun we seem to be having. And it's because we are legitimately having fun. I know. And big shout out and thank you to all the new listeners tuning in this week. We appreciate your support. We relaunched, so we're still trying to you know grow our audience. So definitely share with some other type nerds or design nerds that you think could use this. But definitely a shout out. We appreciate the support and love we've gotten thus far. Yeah, what do YouTube people say? They say like, like and subscribe. (laughs) Did the button below. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think the button's below on podcast, but if you love it, we would love if you send us a sweet review on Apple or Google, or I don't think Spotify has reviews, but listen and share and do all the great stuff because we love you and want to keep doing this. Also fun shout out to all the awesome league members we have been working hard on the paid league membership which has been such a boost to what we have been doing here with the league that plus some of our sponsors that we are just insanely grateful for which we're going to talk about later because they they have cool things to share with you so we want to get into our cool links this week let's dive in okay so the first link i'm very excited about and was audibly making excited noises reading this article that's how exciting it is and it's from typography guru our nerdy type friends over on that blog and it's called the awesome mac os catalina fonts you did it know you had access to and it is exactly about those words. So if you read a little bit more in the article, you learn that recently Apple has licensed fonts from renowned type foundries like Commercial Type, Klim Type, Mark Simonson Studio, to name a few. Very exciting. Also, Sued Tipos is a great foundry that they license some typefaces from. And it's very exciting. Just to name a few highlights that I'm excited about, um, Domain Display by Klim Type Foundry, Canela from Commercial Type. I'm a huge fan of that. Founders Grotesque, also from Klim. I personally never thought I'd be owning anything from Klim before I was making a substantial salary, but now I am, <laughs> which is exciting. They're expensive, but they're really high quality. I, in fact, looked up the prices from these foundries, and just to get, let's say, Canela from Commercial Type in 16 styles, which your Mac OS has, would cost around $400. So you have like a couple thousands of dollars worth of licensed fonts that are on your computer and they're not yet activated. So this is why no one really knew about it. They're in your font book, but they're disabled on Catalina, which I'm trying to figure out why they would be disabled. I'm guessing just for font size to save space. I mean, from the article, it doesn't quite look like they're disabled. I think the option here, when you click on it, as described in the article, is to download it. And so Mm -hmm. I think it's a matter of Apple probably plans on including the files in future operating systems. Oh. But for now, they have it on a server that you can access. Which is interesting because Fontbook has no public talk of having Mm -hmm. any kind of downloadable server things like that's an interesting hidden feature that I don't think anybody knew existed. 
Yeah, I think it's like pretty sneaky, but I'm definitely taking advantage of it. And so it's really as simple to get these fonts. It's as simple as going to your font book, searching for any of the font families that are in this article and clicking download and they appear on all of your font lists. So you do need Mac OS. You do need Mac OS yes. Catalina, which yes. I was just saying before this, I have not upgraded yet, even though it's been <laughs> 57 years that it's been out. But there's another point to talk about too, which is licensing with this stuff. Especially since I haven't updated to be able to access it and see it with my own eyes. I don't know for sure what the licensing options of these fonts are. I assume it's just that you have a desktop license to use it, but I don't even know if it's that. So I Googled this. Oh, and so I definitely think we need to research a little bit more before we go to a definitive answer. But I was basically Googling, can I use it for commercial use? And apparently all Mac OS licensed fonts are available for personal and commercial use. But they didn't mention that you should look into the metadata within the font to figure out the licensing. Yeah. I looked into FontBook and didn't find anything about the licensing. Mm. So definitely might take some more research um, before you go ahead and design a whole new branding identity for <laughs> a big Fortune 500 company <laughs> you know, right. before using that. But it still gives access to some really great high quality fonts. We're, we're very I, excited I, to share It's this. certainly available for personal use. I can't imagine that they yes. would include it if that wasn't the case. So that's cool. You can start making some sweet, sweet slides. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so that kind of moves into another app that we are ready to discuss. And complementary to FontBook is an app called Color Ninja. And we are going to mention they are sponsoring our podcast for this week, but we are also a huge fan of the product and are very excited to talk a little bit about it. Yeah, so they reached out to us because we had said, hey, we're looking for sponsors, which is still true. They reached out to us and the creator of this app, whose name is Max, he made this app and we kind of got to demo it, which is really cool. It's a really solid, polished version of a palette scheme maker and like a color picker where you can not only pick out the colors that you want, it helps you with a lot of color theory, which I've admitted to Olivia, I don't know that much about. So I'm grateful that that is built in, but it also lets you export it in whatever fashion you need. So mm -hmm. for me working on the web, the league has a color palette, right? Mm -hmm. So I have it saved in a PDF somewhere, what they are written down with this, I can open it up. It can help me pick alternative colors for when we want to mess around and make something new that's complementary or somehow related. I can flip and touch it and get it in my clipboard so I can just paste it into the browser. It's super user-friendly and, you know, kind of some details as far as what color schemes it helps you create. It actually mathematically generates color schemes for you that are based off of color harmonies and color chords. So that means, you know, back to your color theory classes, if you ever taken one, tetradic color harmonies, complementary, obviously, but split complementary, which is a little bit more complicated. There's analogous, which is, you know, if you have a color wheel that's based off of your given color that you start with, it'll find all the colors that are next to it in a color wheel. It's kind of hard to explain verbally, <laughs> but I, I think it's hard to explain non-verbally too. <laughs> exactly. But you know what those color chords and color harmonies are like, if you think about music, if you just kind of plop your fingers down on the piano, you're going to make a chord basically. And there's not too much knowledge if you're just randomly putting your fingers down. 
But what this Color Ninja app does is if you think about, there are chords like C minor and those have given notes. And when you play those notes together, they look great. And so they're giving you the colors that will look awesome with your color that you have chosen and give you schemes to work off of. So I think that was the best I could come up with with my metaphor is that the notes are the colors and the nice sounding chord sound is the, the nice looking color scheme. And so honestly, too, one of the things that that I found really intriguing when he reached out to us was he's got an email sign up at the bottom of the page for join the Color Ninja Academy, which, you know, when I signed up, it said we'll be starting this middle of June. And I'm interested because I'm hoping, I don't know for sure, we haven't talked about it, but I'm hoping that that'll be an explanation of those schemes so that I can learn a little bit about it and make smarter decisions I'm interested in that part too. Yeah, me as well. I think the app is honestly really handy. And Mac 2 also gave us a handful of sweet promo codes to give away to wonderful league peeps. So check out our Instagram and our Twitter for details on that. We'll figure out what we're doing there and give a handful away to wonderful league followers. I'm very excited about that. And our first coupon giveaway too. Yeah, that's going to be fun. That's cool. So the next link we have in our roundup is from Type Archer. I believe they're a foundry. And they've released a showcase of variable fonts, which are really just drop caps. So everyone loves a good drop cap project. I think first started by Jessica Hish. And these are actually all very Jessica Hish-like now that I'm taking a look at them. Yeah, that's a good point. They're super fun. They're all just animated drop caps. I have a favorite. It's the letter F. It's just using some Gothic architecture and making a cool animation that looks like an F. (laughs) As far as variable fonts, you know, it's just one letter. So they're more kind of like illustrations than really showing the powerful value of variable fonts. But nevertheless, we think it's really cool and really nice to look at and fun thing to share with your friends. It's also interesting because color fonts is a thing that hasn't gotten quite as much media attention as variable fonts. Mm -hmm. And this is the combination of the two. Yeah, I agree. These are individual letters, so it could have just been individual illustrations. But the fact is it isn't. And Mm -hmm. on top of that, it's an instance of a font where you can type it and it can have multiple colors right when you type it. As opposed to, you know, we're used to of like, monocolored fonts, right? For sure. Exactly. What we already think of are fonts. There are different ways to be playing with those and exploring. I definitely think it's a great starting point to see where the combination of color fonts and variable fonts will go in the future. And a a bunch of this stuff they link to on future fonts, which is a platform, we've talked about it before. It's a platform where you can help pay to have a font developed, like you pay now and get access to the font as it's being made. Mm-hmm. And this, at least there's a, a link hidden at the very end of a font from Type Archer called Gimme on future fonts that has a lot of this stuff built in that you could buy for pretty cheap, to be honest. It's 23 bucks at the moment. Yeah, Future Fonts is super cool. I feel like I have not spent enough time there, but I'd love to actually interview one of the founders of Future Fonts to see mm. how things are going. You know, it's been around for about a year and what's working because it's kind of a revolutionary like way to sell and license fonts. Yeah, totally. 
Speaking of revolutionary fonts, I'm very excited to talk about our next link. It comes from the Type Foundry, Black Foundry, and the typeface they made is called Alpine Script. I think it's an unbelievable example of a script variable font, which I really haven't seen that much in the news. So they basically took the values of the company. They were commissioned to do this by Alpine, which I believe is a European car company. And they try to evoke the values of agility and velocity and sport, you know, great values of a car. But what I found really incredible is that there are probably four or five styles of a script within this one font. And each style is expressive in such a different way. There's a really bold style that looks like brush marker lettering. There's a thinner style that's meant for smaller lettering that literally looks like someone's handwriting. It is so spot on. Um, I think it's incredible that it can, you know, encompass all of this in one font that is so expressive. And, you know, typically I see variable fonts and it'll be a sans serif that will look really fat and then can look really skinny and then can be italic. You know, the more typical things that we think about with variable fonts and to see it applied in such a different way was so inspiring for me. And it's worth noting that this article this week is really uh, linking to a behind the scenes of a font that you can't have. Yes. So it's custom commissioned for this company, as in only they can use it. But it's really fascinating to see. There's a little bit of behind the scenes of how they made it and a lot of just examples of the potential for how to use variable tech with handwritten fonts. And a lot of that is just randomness or or at least seeming randomness, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like I was saying, the handwritten font looks like handwriting. I think handwritten fonts honestly get a pretty bad rap. I don't know if that started with Comic Sans or what, but (laughs) I mean, it just has so much energy to it. It feels fast. It feels like someone's actual hand feels also elegant, but, you know, fast and kind of doesn't have a lot of thought behind it. You don't like see any hesitancy in the writing. There's just so many things I love about this that you guys will have to check it out um, and see for your own eyes. I would so love to be able to use this font. This is so Ugh. wonderful. So I love a handwritten font. You know that. I do know that. You're, <laughs> you're definitely a sucker for one. And so to use these handwritten fonts and to see if there's other language compatibilities, that's not the smoothest transition, but our next link is called Universal Specimen. And it's just a super useful tool. It's really straightforward. It kind of is what the title is. You can you plug in a font, whether it's that's on your local computer or what they have available. This project is by Rosetta, the foundry. Yeah. And you can test different languages. So you can see side by side what the font looks like in English and what the font looks like in Russian or Tagalog or Thai. <laughs> they have a bunch of different options. And I just think it's like just a super useful thing that if you're going to be typesetting in multiple languages, you should definitely consider it before going ahead and starting to typeset. It's one of those things where I think they looked at how everybody manually checks their fonts and then looked at all the automated tools that exist. I'm like, all the automated tools that exist are in English, mm-hmm. which you know, for us working in English is great and useful and fine, but they were like, shoot, we're trying to make these super multilingual families. Mm -hmm. And that means you got to test everything manually. And so I think they built this for themselves of just, we've been doing too much manual work and want something a little bit more automated. And it ends up being a really smooth tool. 
this is another thing too this is a bit of a tangent and i won't go too long on it but it's nice to see more and more font foundries getting into the web yeah i feel like yeah. for too long there was this weird headbutting of well we're web designers and we use fonts the the font designers are like well we use scripting languages mm -hmm. and more and more we're seeing font foundries making these reactive tools using modern javascript frameworks and whatever else to make it really smooth and fluid and pretty and i love that yeah no it's super exciting to see and you know it reminds me of super old school type history when you see old bibles and they'd have three languages on one page i'm talking about like bibles from the 16th century but you know it's a similar idea you have to make the style the font the typeface valuable in all three of those if you're trying to communicate to multiple audiences we're, we're living in a global village and that's the case in a lot of scenarios these days yeah you know what else is a nice hidden feature on here that I'm only just noticing mm -hmm. is in different languages at the very bottom of this tool, they have stats on each of the columns oh, yeah. for each language. And one of those is recommended line height is really interesting. Mm, that is interesting. I feel like that's obviously different with different kinds of characters, but I was thinking in Swedish or in Icelandic words are actually quite a bit longer than in English, just like the character count per word. So if you're typesetting something in Icelandic and English, maybe you make the columns wider for Icelandic so you can fit more words per line and have less hyphenation. Yeah. Um, all these nitty gritty details that I think um, this tool can really help work out and iron out. Super fascinating. I love this. Love this Good as find. well. Micah, is it time? I think it's time. <laughs> we have the nerd alert segment. I'm so excited about this being a new thing. It's it's really fun. I mean, I enjoy doing all the research ahead of time and imparting what I learned because I learn something new every time. I'm like, I think I know a little bit about this topic. And then I research it. I'm like, oh my God, my eyes are so much more open to all these new things I've learned. So what are we um, learning about this week, my friends? I've been seeing in the news something called new morphism that is spelled N-E-U-M-O-R-P-H-I-S-M. And that kind of sounds like something designers are familiar with. Might it be skew-morphism? We should say, too, <laughs> we included a link in the newsletter this week so that you can read up on this as well. Yeah, exactly. Because I didn't know what new morphism was when I saw just the text of it. And so I've been researching what it is this whole week, which has put me in a rabbit hole of where it came from and the history of when it all began and how we got to new morphism that we have today. So I'm definitely going to talk about new morphism, but I want to talk about the history and how we landed there. We should preface this by saying it's not like new morphism is the thing that you are seeing absolutely everywhere, right? This exactly. is kind of a trend that it has been blowing up on Dribble, not so much in the functional apps that you're seeing lately, right? Yeah. So you kind of have to be in tune with like design news to be seeing it because it's not actually being laid out on many platforms, although you see hints of it in some of the everyday tools we use. It's mostly just being prototyped on Dribble. <laughs> and even the articles about neomorphism are like, you've probably seen this on Dribble. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm going to start because neomorphism is actually a hybrid word of new and skewmorphism. I kind of want to start with skewmorphism, which is a concept a lot of us are more familiar with. And that was kind of a style that was introduced, you know, by Apple. And it was really popular 2000s. 
it's when Apple had things like the notepad app looked like a legal pad and your contact book app looked like a contact book Rolodex and everything had highlights and reflections and looked like a real thing. An example of this that still exists today is the trash can on macOS still looks like a trash can with shadows and highlights and looks like a real thing. But skeuomorphism, well, it's like a style that we're familiar with that we talk about in design history came from this whole different concept called a skewmorph, and that's been existing for centuries. I mean, for a very long time. And skewmorph, if we want to break that down, we have skew, S-K-E-U-O, which is Greek meaning container or vessel. And then we have morph, which is Old English for the word shape. So we have container and vessel and shape. If we go to the Oxford Dictionary, we have like a much better understanding of what a skewmorph is by definition. And that is an object or feature which imitates the design of a similar artifact. Also a little bit wordy, but I got some examples for you guys. Okay. <laughs> Electric candles are a skewmorph. They are an object imitating another thing in so-called like incorrect material because it's, you know, plastic and you're not having wax and a flame. Wood paneled cars are a famous skewmorph because those mm -hmm. are actually imitating horse buggies from you know the 19th century but in the 80s or whenever wood paneled cars were a huge thing that was the skewmorph um because we don't need wood to make a car that's not functional that is strictly form um fake flowers are a skewmorph let's mm. make a real thing out of plastic that's skewmorph and finally i really like this one on plastic cutlery and there are still grooves on it that make it similar to silverware because, like, huh. we don't need those grooves. They're totally ornamentation. But people that mold plastic cutlery, like, maybe if we give it more of the sensibilities of silverware, it will feel more like the real thing. There's obviously, throughout history, a certain level of kitsch that we associate <laughs> with these things. You know, they aren't the real thing. Or even, like, pebbled fake leather, you know, that's meant to imitate real leather. Those are good examples of skewmorphs. So, let's go to the 1980s. Steve Jobs. So many design history stories. Start. He wanted to take the idea of skeuomorphism with the Apple icons. And so this is even before we're talking about the style that we mentioned earlier of super reflective, ornamented design styles. We're talking about the idea of creating icons within his interface that imitate the real thing. So just even a drawing of a trash can on your desktop is a skeuomorph because it's a metaphor for a trash can. The code is doing its own thing and the code's not literally having like trash in it. It's the look of it that will allow people to understand the metaphor. And the same thing with the floppy disk, which is the famous example, which is still our save button. That's a skewmorph mm. because we see that we see the floppy disk and Steve Jobs' whole thinking was that we know that that meant save. So let's move through several years into the Mac operating systems to like the 2000s when I remember, Micah, you mentioned this. Steve Jobs wanted things to be lickable. Right. I love and that quote. So good. And I found that in so many resources as well. And that's the lickableness of the contact book app on your phone looking like a Rolodex or the pebbled leather that used to be a detail in the calendar app, which I think is hilarious to mimic a desktop calendar. Like adding in so many tiny, tiny details that are... Uh, representative of real materials that it makes you look at the operating system and be like, ooh, 
Yeah. Right? Yeah. And he added it to like everything. I mean, we think about the old scroll bars, all the buttons used to have that reflective glossy sheen on it. So it looked like we're pressing a button. I mean, now we think this was like super over the top and we're like, ew, skeuomorphism, how kitschy. So glad we moved from that. And so in 2013, the end of skeuomorphism as we knew it exists kind of stopped existing in Apple products. They changed everything to flat design. It was iOS 7. It was very exciting. The flat design that we are more familiar with today, and that's inspired by the Swiss style of the 50s and 60s. In 2014, Google also introduced like their own take on flat design, and that is called material design. And it still was mostly flat, but it bring back some of the nuances of soft shadows and they say it was inspired by pen and ink, but it was nowhere close to what we thought of skewmorphism um, when Apple did it. Right. And Micah, do you have any like takes or better explanations of material design as a developer? Well, one of the things is they open sourced the ability to use material design so that anybody can make an app in that style, presumably to fit into their operating systems. But mm -hmm. it was interesting when it came out because there were a lot of tiny details in this new half flat way, like tiny interactive details. Like when you click on a button, there's a little animation that flows out from the point where you clicked as opposed mm -hmm. to the entire button, which was kind of new. Tiny details like that. But... Uh, after a while, sort of like Twitter's bootstrap, this open sourced design framework got used so much by people who didn't want to think about how uh. to design themselves. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Which I'm not knocking that. That is the benefit of design systems, but it also means people who weren't actively putting much thought into the design were mm -hmm. just reaching for material design. And it kind of... To me, this is my opinion, became this overused thing where they end up kind of feeling bland in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Not just because it was overused, also just they designed it in a way that it was supposedly like universally accessible. It was almost like they tried to cover so much ground with it that, I don't know, I ended up resenting it a bit. Got it. I love that hot take. I was very excited when I mentioned material design, which is something I've never heard before, to be completely really? honest. Yeah, I, I there was skeuomorphism and there's flat design, and that's where it ended until obviously new movement. I guess I would put it as a, a framework that was an output of that category, not as a yeah. similar category. And I started to realize that once I did a little bit of research and we chatted about it. So yeah, I mean, tell your friends about material design if they're interested in web design <laughs> history. So that was 2014. Google introduces material design. Apple is still flat design, 2013 to the present. And so get to the end of 2019. And guys, we're finally going to tell you what new morphism is. <laughs> I know I've been keeping you hanging this whole time. And so 2019, new morphism comes to existence in prototypes. Exactly. It's not really being used. And it is supposed to be conveying this sort of freshness, which you immediately feel when you look at new morphism. There were so many incredible, satisfying things looking at it. And it does feel like future in so many ways. There are pros and cons to it. I'm going to just start with that. Mostly, the easiest way to describe it is it looks like soft extruding plastic, <laughs> which is a term I've used. It's also been called soft UI. It's very much a white on white, color on color, 
style um, where you still have the shadows and highlights of skeuomorphism, but they're incredibly nuanced, toned down. I'm working on a little new morphic graphics to accompany this episode. And so I had some experience building it, very nuanced. You add the tiniest drop shadow and the tiniest highlight, and you can kind of have this fake out button, so to speak. But again, nothing like skeuomorphism as we used to know it. Definitely benefits of having this new feel. Lots of issues with, issues with accessibility. It's really hard to have contrast in buttons when you're trying to make everything look so nuanced. It's hard to tell the different states of a button if it's pressed, if it's not pressed. I mean, you can imagine if you had a totally white surface with white buttons on top, and let's say you're, you're outside on a really sunny day and you're having a hard time seeing your screen, I can't imagine that being an issue. <laughs> when this trend started taking off on Dribbble, Dribble has a bit of a tough name at the moment <laughs> where a lot of designers make stuff that you can't actually make, like animations that aren't possible and mm -hmm. designs that aren't feasible. And so this was like a cool kid trend on Dribble, it seemed when it came out. And so a lot of designers had this kind of mean reaction of like, we just need to kill this thing. This is never going to take off. This is trash. Don't do it at all costs, which I think is extreme. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I, a lot of the articles that are about neomorphism, including the one we have in the newsletter, show the pros and cons. They understand that this is not an end-all be-all, but they're also mentioning that it's possible that we can start integrating these into some elements of user interface and user experience. Not all, certainly. It's just such a beautiful form, but again, it lacks function in some parts of it. And if you want to see it in life right now, it's not totally hidden. For example, on an iPad or on Mac OS, sorry, this is all kind of Apple-centric news, <laughs> sorry, PC users, but I know if you want to sketch on your notes on an iPad, you know, a set of pens and pencils appear, and they're actually white on white with very nuanced highlights and shadows. They look matte, they're textureless, which is the big thing about new morphism. So there are places where you can introduce this. It's just, it's not gonna work out if you want contrast, if you want to make anything bold, everything is like very muted. There's a really interesting example of someone doing Spotify in a new morphic way. And again, you can really see the pros and cons. It looks like the future, but <laughs> there's certainly very low contrasts in buttons where I think I'd want high contrast when I'm using Spotify. That's kind of what I got for you guys. I think it's a really interesting new trend that will it stick, will it not? I think some parts of it will. I think it's kind of good to keep on the radar as we're moving forward. You know, what is after flat design? I don't know. And could we even have flat design without skeuomorphism? You know, it seems excessive, the Ill illustrative style of skeuomorphism. Now we'd be like, well, why do you need to make a scroll bar look three-dimensional? But in the late 2000s, there was a huge learning curve and everyone had to figure out how to use apps and phones and computers. And we use them for what, like 70% of our day now at this point. Mm. I think we take for granted everything that we learned about how to use interfaces from skeuomorphism because they were such obvious things. You know, think about a calculator. When we originally had that, it looked like there was buttons because of the shading and the reflection, you know, on our computer. And we think that's ugly now. But would we have known to be pressing buttons if there wasn't that cue to do it. And not only in a calculator, but in so many different apps, we take advantage of flat design and we think it's really simple, but would we know how to use things like the way we do now without skeuomorphism? That's a good question to be thinking of. 
That is a great, great point. I love that take. The classic tale of art movements, which Mm -hmm. art versus design is, of course, its own whole debate, but you have to admit they're related, that art movements generally rebel from the last movement. Yeah, totally. This is an interesting example of that happening, where it was skeuomorphism went to completely flat as a rebellion, and now people are rebelling against completely flat, going a little bit back towards skeuomorphism mm-hmm. with new morphism in, yeah. a, in a new, creative, interesting way. Something that you mentioned that I completely agree with is while everybody was having fun experimenting and posting cool prototype ideas of new morphism as that was getting popular on Dribble. Now, especially I think with some of that backlash, we're seeing a lot more examples in current, like yesterday's dribble feed of mm-hmm. exactly what we are talking about, of taking pieces of new morphism and adding in pieces of flat design to add contrast or whatever and mm-hmm. making it a little bit more balanced. And those are some really interesting, beautiful UI ideas. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I'm really excited to see where things go from here. Such a fun topic. Thanks, Olivia. Well, thanks for letting me share. It was definitely a lot of fun researching. And now I know what a skeuomorph is. And <laughs> I'm going to literally, now that I see it, I'm not going to be able to unsee it. I'm going to be like, oh, <laughs> right. does that pottery have weaving like an actual basket, but it's a cookie jar? Yes, yeah, skeuomorph. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it'll be fun. Well, and um, also thank you to everybody for tuning in to this fabulous, fun typography and design week. This was yeah. really great. Yeah, it was a good one. We're going to have another good one next week. As always, we're on social media. Send us cool stuff. Say hi, follow and subscribe and whatnot to the podcast. And of course, this comes with our complimentary weekly typographic newsletter that we send out via email every week from the leagueofmovabletype.com. So that's it. Thanks, everybody, for joining this week. And we'll see you next week. See ya.